to stand as we read Scripture for today. Romans chapter 7. Verses 5 and 6, and then we'll start up again in verse 1 of chapter 8 and read to verse 4. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, you may be seated. Those of you who were here last week will remember that we considered last time some of the errors of what is called second work sanctification or or Christian perfection. And we saw that this question, uh, can you keep from sinning for one minute, doesn't really tell the whole story about sin. Of course, a Christian can keep from sinning for one minute, and he can keep from sinning for an hour and for a day and and so on, if by sin you mean a certain thing, if you define sin a certain way. And the way Wesley, for example, defined it was sin is a willful transgression of a known law. In other words, um, here comes a temptation. You know that this thing is wrong. You know that it's a wrong thing to do. And uh, by the grace of God, you choose not to do that thing. Is that possible? Is it possible to keep from committing sin in that sense? Or to say, well, sin is if you know that this thing is wrong, you're tempted to do it, and you willfully choose to commit that sin. Well, if that's your definition of sin, yes, a Christian can keep from sinning for one minute. You don't have to commit that sin. Um, God has given many promises that we don't have to be defeated by that sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So with that understanding, you say, well, yes, a Christian can keep from sinning for one minute and for one hour and for one day. Well, the question comes up then, what's wrong with the idea then, at least in theory, of Christian perfection? And what's wrong with saying that you haven't sinned for 20 years? Well, the thing that's wrong with it is that its definition of sin is very defective. 
Um, if you look at the great commandments that we should, first of all, the first one that we should love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind, and that we should love our neighbor just as much as we love ourselves, you can see that there's a lot more involved in that than just not going out and doing a willful sin. It involves something positive. It involves loving. And it does not only involves loving, but it involves loving with all your strength, with all your might, every, every fiber of your being, you see. That's the standard. And anything less than that is a breaking of that commandment. So you see, when you look at sin in that light, then you've got a totally different picture of what's involved. And uh, so any idea of, of uh, any talk about uh, absolute uh, perfection or sinlessness or anything like that is a big, big mistake, and it leads to all sorts of evil. And we looked at some of that last week and, and all sorts of deception. No matter how holy we may become in this lifetime, there will still be, always be, vast room for growing in holiness and in death to self and in Christ-likeness, so you see. Now, the other side of the coin is, though, is that there are people uh, who almost despise anyone who talks about deeper experiences of God in the Christian life or entering into new realms of victory over sin. And so we've got to be careful about falling off the cliff in the other direction. Um, the fact is that there are many thirsty souls who have entered into wonderful realms of victory and glorious joy and deliverance. Maybe they've struggled with something and they come to God crying out in desperation and the Lord meets with them and they're just like in a different world. It's almost like, it's almost like uh, becoming a Christian again. There's such a change in their life. Now that's happened to Christians, true Christians. And uh, for us to despise that or throw it out because maybe they might not even understand how to describe it, there is a big danger in that. And uh, you can think of somebody like even Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor had been a godly man, a missionary for years, and God showed him something out of John 15 about abiding in the vine that changed his life just in a moment. And... Uh, uh, sometimes you have to sort through the way people describe things theologically, and maybe you can't agree with it completely. But uh, we ought to get great hope and encouragement from testimonies like that. It's just telling God's telling us that there's much more for us to enter into. And uh, so um, we've got to be careful here. Uh, just as a as a warning to what can happen in this area, I want to read uh, an account of a man named William Hone. And uh, Hone grew up in a family that uh, uh, despised John Wesley and his teachings. And uh, some of the things that Wesley taught were wrong. But um, anyway, let me read the account. He says, John Wesley in particular, they spoke of with great bitterness. To them, he was the apostle of error. Now he's talking about Hone's parents. They were even prepared to call him a child of the devil. As a boy, William Hone attended an old dame school. Now that was their name for these schools where you'd have one, an old, 
older lady teached a bunch of children in her home. Hone attended an old dame school, even though, strange as the case may seem, the proprietress was a member of the Wesleyan body. Now, how his parents let him go to that school, I don't know. But Anyway, Hone was one of her favorite pupils. She was taken ill, and the boy was given the special privilege of visiting her. As he did so on one occasion, the maid came into the bedroom to announce a visitor. It was none other than John Wesley in old age. The boy, sitting by the bedside, was at once thoroughly alarmed. For was not Wesley a child of the devil? The boy gazed in terror and wonder. There entered a venerable old man, his silvered hair hanging down to his shoulders, his complexion fresh and placid, his smile sweet. To the boy's amazement, he seemed to have the countenance of an angel. He ministered to the lady, spoke comforting words, knelt down, prayed, and took his departure, saying to the awestruck lad as he did so, God bless you, my child, and make you a good man. In later years, Hone passed this comment. Now, you got to realize who William Hone was. He was one of the most notable atheists in Great Britain, vehement in his hatred of Christianity. This is what he said. He said, I never saw Mr. Wesley again. My dame died, that is the teacher. But from that hour, I never believed anything my father said or anything I heard at chapel. I felt, though I could not have expressed it, how wicked was such enmity between Christians. And so I lost all confidence in my good father and in all his religious friends and in all religion. Isn't that amazing? Now, the good thing is, is that this man was later converted, and uh, God did a wonderful work in his life. But, but that incident turned him away so much that uh, he, he almost perished, partly because of that. So it's a warning to us. We've got to be careful not to strain out the gnat and swallow the camel in, the, in these matters. Men like Leonard Ravenhill, Duncan Campbell, Keith McLeod, all those men had somewhat Wesleyan views of sanctification. Well, you say, I'm not going to listen to anything they had to say. Well, if you, if you don't, you're going to miss tremendous blessing, you see. Now, that's no guarantee. I mean, that's no condoning of error. We've got to, error hurts people too. But um, it's just that... Um, We've got to be careful in these matters and have a humble attitude. It's far better to be a holy man with a burning heart than to be a cold, carnal, correct doctrinarian. And it's amazing, isn't it? God God says the kind of person that He will look to. Now, it's something when you get God's attention. He says, to this man will I look. God says, I'll, I'll, this, this arrests my attention. To him who has letter-perfect doctrine. No, that's not what he says. To him that is of a broken and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And when somebody has that hard attitude, they may be all mixed up in a lot of things. Now, it's different to be a false prophet. There's some guys that are false prophets. They're charlatans. And they're robbing people of their money in various ways by deception and what have you. That's totally different. But when you're talking about a godly man, You've got to sort out some things he may be mixed up on, but you can still receive a lot from it. 
in my own life, um, I remember there have been different times where I've gone forward uh, at meetings seeking God, seeking to be more holy in some area, seeking victory in some area of my life, and God honored that. And I never was the same again after that time, after one time of going forward in a meeting or something of that sort. Now, the problem is, is if you start talking about one cure-all type of experience, well, you need to have this one experience. And if you start talking about some kind of total or complete deliverance or that kind of thing, then you get into all these other problems. The devil will get you any way that he can. If he can get you to, to take this wretched, miserable, defeated Christian view, fine, he's won. On the other hand, if you're hungry and thirsty for God and He can get you to start claiming perfection or trying to get perfection, absolute Christ-like perfection, He'll drive you crazy on that side. It doesn't matter, you see. So we've got to have truth. Um, there are times when in the Christian life you've struggled and fought against something and finally you come to the point of just crying. I mean, just sobbing out before God and crying out for deliverance and believing the truth of what He has said about your deliverance in Christ and you're free. And that has happened multitudes of times to true Christians. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it commands us to be being filled with the Spirit. That is a commandment that relates to us. We don't have anything to do with God pouring out His Spirit upon us. That's something that He does. But when it the commandment, be filled with the Spirit, has to do with being controlled by the Spirit. And that has to do with confessing your sins and being cleansed and believing the truth and walking and committing yourself to God. And that's something we're responsible for. And what a glorious message that we have that we can, when we fail, we can ask forgiveness, we can be cleansed, and we can, but we don't have to remain in a cycle of defeat the rest of our life. Confess and ask forgiveness and confess and sin and so on all the time in some area of known sin. That is not the message of the Bible. Well, before we go on then to set the stage for chapter 8, I'd like to take some time right now to review with you, with you, not just me talking, but with you, some of the basic concepts that we've looked at in chapter 6 and 7. Now, I want to do that by bringing up some questions uh, to ask you, and then in a little while uh, encouraging you to ask me any questions that you may have, so that all those people that you think already know the answer can learn from you asking the question. So we want to have that opportunity. Um, in particular, I want to start by talking to you about the old man. Now, why do I do this? Well, because it's something that... I mean, I've talked about this a lot in Romans 6. But you hear so many confusing things, and you, it's hard to get clear in your mind, what are we talking about when we talk about the old man and the new man? And what are we talking about when we talk about the flesh? So let me just give you a quote from a sermon that I listened to this past week. This is what the, the preacher said. Now, his message was excellent by and large, but this is what he said. He said, you know your old man that has been crucified. I mean, you know what he's like. And if you don't want him resurrected, you have to teach yourself not to do things that conjure up a resurrection. Now, what's wrong 
with that. Now, if you have a clear understanding of these things, don't answer these questions yet. Let the people that are thinking about this answer. What's wrong with this? Your old man has been crucified, and if you don't want a resurrection of the old man, don't do things that will conjure up a resurrection. <laughs> what's, what, what's he talking about? What's, is there anything that he's talking about here that fits experience? May I ask that? You know what he's talking about in experience? Not, not theologically, he might word it differently, but is there anything in experience that fits? <laughs> I mean, you can't see the expression on faces. <laughs> can't see what I'm looking at. <laughs> okay. Um. Now, if you didn't hear Don's answer, I can go ahead and ask you. <laughs> What's he talking about when he says, don't do things that will resurrect the old man? What's he talking about there? What does he mean by that? Okay, putting yourself in the way of temptation. Looking at things you shouldn't look at. Listening to things you shouldn't listen to. Now, he says... That's going to conjure up a resurrection of the old man. Well, now, biblically, what would the biblical way to describe that be? It's not a resurrection of your old man. The Bible never talks about that, but what is it? Why do you have any problem? Why can't you do those things? Why can't you look at things that you shouldn't and not have any problem? What is that called when you do something like that? Or what is the problem? What are you, what's causing the temptation? Anybody go ahead. All right, it's called the flesh. Now, it's not your old man. It's the flesh. And the Bible recognizes the flesh. And it, you know what it says? The very same thing. Instead of saying, don't do things that will conjure up a resurrection of the old man, the way you could say it biblically, is make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You see? That's biblical. Now, what is the old man? Well, the old man is who you were before you became a Christian. Our old man is crucified with him. The, the old Nora Gates is dead and gone. You'll never see the old Nora, the, the pre-Christian Nora. You see, that's what that's saying. Your old man, the person that you used to be, is gone. You'll never be that again. You're a new person. You're a new man. Now, so what you're fighting, you say, all right, I'm a new man. What is this thing I'm fighting? Well, it's not the old man that I'm fighting. I'm fighting the flesh. And the Christian still has the flesh to contend with. All right? So, the biblical way of saying what he, what he said there is just saying, look, you're a new man now. Now, you still have the flesh, but don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You see, that's, that's a biblical way of looking at it. Another question that comes up a lot is along these lines. If, if our old man is crucified, why do I still have so much trouble with him? Well, you see, you're not having trouble with the old man. You're having trouble with the flesh. 
All right. So um, it makes it so helpful. Now, let me just give an example. This error that we read about last week, they were talking about how to enter into this Christian perfection. And he said third, the third step was claim in faith the incoming of the Holy Spirit as a refining fire to burn out all inbred sin, thus destroying in toto every lust and passion, leaving the soul perfect in love and as pure as unfallen Adam. Well, let me ask you a question. He says the Spirit's going to come in and burn out every lust and passion. Let me ask you a question. What is the source of lusts and passions in the Christian life? Anybody? The flesh. All right? And he actually talks about the lusts of the flesh. Now, you've got to realize that the flesh is tied in with this mortal body. He says the members of your body. And sin is called a deed of the body. Now, when are you going to get rid of the flesh. When are you going to have no problem with it anymore? At when you die, or at the at the redemption of our bodies, when I, when we're perfected, then we won't have any trouble anymore. So immediately, if you just use biblical terminology, you know right off the bat, you're not going to get rid of lusts and passions and have them burnt out and eradicated because you still got your flesh, you still got your mortal body. So there's. Uh, just by having right thinking about that one thing, you avoid all those errors that they got into. Because they thought that this is something that you could have burnt out of you. You're not going to have that burnt out of you until you are no longer in your mortal body. As long as you're in your mortal body, there's going to be something in you that reaches out and says, I want that extra thing there, or I want this or that, or I want more uh, chocolate, or I want more you know, sexual temptation or whatever it is, a physical body, the lust of the flesh. Paul talks about those lusts of the flesh. Now, now the next question, do you have to be defeated by the flesh? What's the answer? No. What, what are some verses? You've got to have verses in your mind to help you. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And there it is again, the lust of the flesh. You see, you're never going to have them eradicated, but you walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill them. And many other verses, like in, in Romans 6.6, 6, our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So, many Scriptures like that. Romans 8.13, If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So we don't have to be defeated by the flesh. Let me ask this. Is a Christian's heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? No. No. (laughs) All right. That description, and again, the description in Genesis, uh, every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. That's not talking about a Christian. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's not talking about a Christian's heart. How do we know that? Well, God says, I'll take that heart out and give you a new one. And another place concerning Nathaniel, you know what Jesus said about him? Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Now, does that sound like somebody who's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? 
It's amazing that he would say that about him. And we know that it's not an absolute perfection type statement, but he's saying that this guy has reality in his heart. He, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's some kind of purity that's happened in, in the heart of a Christian. And they have a different heart. They're a different person. Um, the, true great, the two great practical truths out of Romans 6 are this. One, we have a new identity. Who am I really? Am I a new man or an old man? Or am I both a new man and an old man? Who am I? Well, the Bible says you're a new man. So I have a new identity. I realize and believe who I am. I'm in a different realm now. I'm a new person. It's not, not the thing that I want, and it's not normal anymore for me to, to follow sin. What's normal for me now as a Christian is to follow God and to love God. That's the thing that fits me. And if I try to sin, it goes against and grieves who I really am. So, first big thing, I have a new identity. The second big thing, I have a new power. I don't have to let sin reign in my mortal body anymore. And those are the big, big things that we ought to come away with. So, after that, after having said all that, let me just ask you if there are any questions lingering about Romans 7. Now, I know that some of you have some because I talked with one brother this week who, who brought up a number of questions and we were able to talk through it. And a lot of times, it, you know, it's so easy to just go on and um, just kind of, you know, not really understand what's being said. And I, we may not be able to hash that out today, but we might. We might get some, make some progress if there's things that aren't clear in your mind here, like on the last half of Romans 7, or any of these things. So does anybody have a question that you want to ask on this? Most of the time, they tie right together. And, you know, it's, it's more than just saying, I mean, first of all, we know that the body, Bible doesn't teach that the body's evil, because it says in 1 Corinthians 6, the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. So the body itself is something good that God created and so on, but sin tries to reign in our mortal body. And Paul even goes so far as to say, if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And he just says, he, another term for sin is a deed of the body. Well, you know, in one sense, it's not just your body acting, you know. But that's the way it is. You cannot commit a sin without using your body in some way. And so he says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So most places where you read, like when he says, uh, let me give some examples. He says, mortify or put to death the members which are upon the earth. That's Colossians 3. The members which are upon the earth. What's that? Well, he says, your body's still down here. You're seated in heavenly places, but your body's still down here in this world, and you have to put to death the deeds of the body. Another place he says, uh, if you through the Spirit, Romans 8.13, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And again, in uh, 6.12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. That's where it's going to try to reign. And um, 
the lust of the flesh are evident, which are, and he goes through some. Some of them fit right in with things that you just normally associate with lust of the flesh. Others don't. But he says all that's tied in somehow with the fact that you're not yet totally redeemed. You don't yet have your glorified body. That's the only thing lacking, you see. Um, Romans 6.6, Our old self, our old man was crucified with Him that our body of sin might be rendered powerless. And here, what's it say? This amazing verses that we just read here in Romans 8. He says, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, or flesh of sin, literally. He says, the Lord was down here. He had a physical body just like us, but it was in the likeness of flesh of sin. He didn't have flesh of sin. He had flesh, but he didn't have flesh of sin. In the likeness of sinful flesh, he sent him down here to die for our sins, to deliver us. But see, the flesh is the problem. He says, what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. The law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold in the bondage of sin. So... It has to do with our mortal bodies not yet being redeemed. Another question. Right, the 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 flow in Romans 7 has to do, we'll be looking at this uh, before we close today, Lord willing, but the flow doesn't have anything to do with struggles in the Christian life or uh, the need for a Christian to walk in the Spirit. The Spirit isn't even mentioned here. So if you want to talk about verses that relate to the struggle of the Christian life, then you go to Galatians 5. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. And the spirit won't allow you to follow the dictates of the flesh. Walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But um, there's nothing at all related to uh, living the Christian life in in that last part of Romans seven. It doesn't really. I mean, here's a guy who is crying out, "Who will deliver me?" Well, Christian knows who will deliver him. It's not a it's not a cry of despair or desperation for a Christian. Uh, I don't see how. Uh, well, you say a hole in his argument. What's the argument? Oh, that there's nowhere in the New Testament that he nowhere talks. In Romans. Nowhere in Romans. Well, yeah, he has a lot about it in Romans because, for example. In chapter 6, he says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. All of those exhortations are because Christians have a battle with sin. And in chapter 8, he says, Therefore, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body. See, there's the battle. And uh, it's done in the power of the Spirit. Uh, and then again, it all comes up, and of course, none of this is really being talked about anyway until you get to chapter 12, because all this is doctrinal. It's laying the foundation. 
When you get to 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in light of everything I've said all the way up to now, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he talks about the practical living of the Christian life all through 12. Okay. That may be right. I don't know that the Bible ever does that. But there's something about the fact that our bodies are fallen. I mean, our appetites, for example. I don't think prior to the fall, there would have ever been a problem with inordinate appetites. And that's part of the problem that we have. In fact, not only can our appetites be exaggerated, you know, like just physical things, exaggerated appetites, but they can actually become perverse and all mixed up. And so all of those things relate to the fallen state of our bodies. So I don't know whether it's a case of, you know, uh, we think of the body in its, in its God, God-given state as being perfectly good, but now it's in a fallen state, so it can be called sinful flesh. Maybe that's the answer to that. Um, I know that the body as such, in its God-given condition, there's nothing evil or sinful about it. But for some reason, he says, he sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh or flesh of sin. So there's something wrong now. What else? Oh, you mean the heart of flesh? Yeah, I think what he's saying there, it's not the moral con- or the ethical connotations of flesh in the New Testament, but it's the idea, I'll take out a heart of stone, that is a cold, hard, unfeeling, impenitent heart, and I'll give you a living heart that's, a, that's warm and pulsating and alive. So, in other words, a heart that's sensitive to the things of God and uh, that loves God rather than a heart that's cold and immovable. There's a sense that you have to read, you have to look at each verse separately. And there's another sense in which they all fit together. For example, Paul says, uh, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, Paul, you said the Christians aren't in the flesh. Well, he doesn't mean that we're living the sphere of our life in the fleshly realm or something like that. He means that he's still in this mortal body. I have died, um, but the old me has been crucified. Now Christ lives in me. That is, He lives in my mortal body. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, but there's the word flesh again. See, so you. But usually, once you understand this, it's not a thing where you have to spend hours trying to figure it out. You can read through those verses, and you know perfectly what He's saying as you read them, because it's just by the context you can tell. Anything else? He is speaking as a person who is in the flesh. So he's speaking of himself before he became a new person. And so he, at this stage, he couldn't say, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He's still here. And so he is an old, he is the old man. He's, he's a person who hadn't become a Christian yet. And he's, he lives his life in the flesh. Now, we're going to get into this in chapter 8, but he says, you're not in the flesh. If you're a Christian, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And he says, those who are according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. There's only two groups of people, the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian is in the flesh, and his mind just automatically goes to the things of the flesh. Maybe not even bad things. I mean, but he thinks on this plane right here. You know, he thinks about computers and, you know, motorcycles and dances and, you know, and and then all the other sinful things associated with the flesh. But his mind is down here. There's nothing spiritual about him. Now, those who are, and he doesn't say, it's not a commandment. He's not saying those who are of the Spirit ought to mind the things of the Spirit. He just, it's just a description. They do automatically. Those who are according to the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, those who are according to the Spirit, they mind the things of the Spirit. If you give them any opportunity, they'll be thinking about God. They'll be talking about God. So here's a person that uh, you have a half hour to spend with them. And during that half hour, they want to talk about everything under the sun, literally. The things of the world. They don't have any concern about God. Their heart is not set on God. Their heart's not set on the things of the Spirit. That just means that they're not a Christian regardless of what they may say. So those who are according to the flesh, they just mind the things of the flesh. They naturally gravitate there. That's what they love. That's what they. And those who are according to the Spirit, they mind the things of the Spirit. Now this guy in Romans 7, he says, I am of flesh. That's all he is. He lives in that realm. And because the Holy Spirit's been dealing with him and showing him that the commandment is spiritual, Showing him that the commandment's good, and he starts trying to keep it, but he can't, and so he's a wretched man. Okay, anything else? Well, we can talk more after if you want to, but let's go ahead and set the stage here.
for chapter 8. You notice that in the Scripture reading today, I left out all the verses that we've been looking at. I left out verses 7 through 25, uh, the very verses that we have been studying for quite some time now. What was Paul's purpose in writing verses 7 to 25? Well, he wrote those verses in order to explain the things that he said in verse 5. Now, what did he say in verse 5? Well, he says, while we were in the flesh, back in before we became Christians, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, the, those are some sh- shocking statements. What is true about those who are in the flesh? First of all, their s- sinful passions are at work in them. Now, that's not so shocking. But the next thing he says is shocking. He says, those sinful passions were actually aroused and stirred up by the law. Now, that's a shocking thing. And then he says, well, before I go on, in other words, he's saying the law doesn't help this person who's in the flesh. It actually puts him in greater bondage, increases his bondage. Third thing he says about them is that those sinful passions are working in their members. You say, where is this happening? It's happening in the members of your body. And then the next thing he says is that those sinful passions working in the members of your body, which are stirred up by the law, always result in death. Now, if you put all those together, they're shocking because Paul has seemingly just implicated the law. In two ways. Now listen, here's what they are. First of all, he has said in verse 5 that the law stirs up sin. Well, if the law stirs up sin, it sounds like the law is to blame for our sin. I mean, if it stirs it up, isn't the law to blame for that sin? Isn't the law sin? That's verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he deals with that in verses 7 through 12. That's the first thing. That he's, and he, 7 through 12, deal with that problem. But there's another problem that comes up, and that is he has said in verse 5 that the final result of law stirring up sin is death. Well, if the final result of the law's work is death, it sounds like the law is to blame for that death. I mean, the, the law did it, right? Sounds like the law is death. And that's what he deals with in verse 13. He says, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. See, And now in verse 14 through 25, he shows what the real problem is. He said, there's, this, there's a, a law of sin in my members. There's sin is waging war. These sinful passions which were aroused by the law are at work in my members. To bear fruit for death. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You see that? He's just talking about what he brought up in verse 5. So verse 7 to 25 are nothing but a fuller explanation of what he said in verse 5. And I hope that's clear. If that, that ought to be, if that ought to be crystal clear to you by now. <clears throat> and what that means is, is that this whole thing is a parenthesis. 
And that means that you can leave the whole thing out and the passage still makes perfect sense without it. Now listen to this. Let's read it again. Verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That's a non-Christian. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now skip the whole section and start at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see how it flows? It directly flows right through there. All right? When Paul takes up this whole thing in verses 7 through 25, what he's doing is explaining why the law is helpless to save us and deliver us. And why is it helpless to save us and deliver us? Because it's weak through the flesh. The flesh is the problem. And this man in Romans 7, 7 to 25, is the man to whom the commandment has come. He realizes that the law is spiritual, but he is a flesh sold into bondage to sin. He's struggling to keep the law and failing miserably. And he finally comes to salvation in Christ. And that's why the law was given. That's what he's saying. That's why it was given. So you'd come to the point of crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ that the law was given to bring us to Christ. That's the whole purpose of the law. Well, with that, we're ready to start chapter 8. And I'm only going to say one thing today about chapter 8 before we close. And that is, I want us to notice the word, therefore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does the therefore go with? Well, first thing I'd just say is that therefore goes with the next verse, actually. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, he says, what God has done in Christ has delivered you from this whole mess that I've been talking about here in chapter 7. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because you've been taken out of this realm I've been talking about. You've passed out of that realm into a new realm. All right? So that's the immediate connection. But not only that, but you can go back and the therefore follows directly from verse 6 of chapter 7. It's like we were just talking about. Verse 5 and 6 and 1 through 4 of chapter 8 are like bookends on this whole section. He introduces it, he gives a section, and then he restates it. So you could say that therefore is just parallel with what he just said back in verse 6. He says, you've been released from the law. There's therefore now no condemnation for you. You've been released from the law. So... The therefore, you say, somebody says, what's the therefore tie? Well, it ties in with verse 2. For Christ has delivered us. He set us free from the law of sin and death. Or you could say, well, it ties, it actually goes clear back to verse 6 of chapter 7. Or you could say, look, he's going all the way back to chapter 5 and the end of chapter 5. Because what did he bring up at the end of chapter 5? He said there were two things. He made two statements that required some explanation. 
The first one was, he says, the law came in that sin might increase. And the other one was, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, he's got to deal with those two problems. Chapter 6 deals with this one about, well, let's continue in sin that grace might abound. Chapter 7 deals with the purpose of the law. The law came in that sin might increase. And he explains that whole thing, you see. There's chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, in chapter 8, he's going back to what he started to talk about in chapter 5, and he's going to start unfolding it again. And what was he talking about in 5? He was talking about the, the fullness, the finality, the security, the certainty of our salvation in Christ. And that's what he's going to do again in chapter 8. And he's going to end up saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It's the very same stuff he was talking about back in chapter 5 when he says, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now, being justified, we're going to be saved. He's coming back to the themes of chapter 5 and he's going to complete them. Remember what we said way back in 5? 5 through 8 deal with the, the fullness and the finality, the certainty of our salvation. Now that we're justified, having been justified by faith, we have all these blessings. And so he's going to take up again what he started to say in 5, and he had to get sidetracked for a while to develop these things in chapter 6 and 7. Now he's going to come back to what he started to say. So in a way... Uh, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, uh, in a way, Romans 8 is the most wonderful chapter in Romans, but chapter 5 is really the most important. It's the, it's the pivotal point. It's where everything changes, and everything else is a working out of that. <clears throat> Lord willing, next time we will start up in 8.1 and begin to look at this amazing 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And that things don't depend ultimately upon our strength or our power, but they depend upon Your faithfulness and the power of Your Holy Spirit. And we thank You, Lord, that it's not just our mind that fights against the flesh, but it's the Spirit Himself who's almighty. The Spirit uh, wages war against the flesh. And that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lord, we, we pray that You'd make all these things clear and enable us to believe and to walk with You and to enter into all the the uh, the blessings that you've already purchased for us. And um, we ask you for your help as we go on here in Romans that you'd give us understanding and uh, um, enable us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for the time of fellowship here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, we're dismissed.